And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing Season 3, Episode 1, Out of Town, written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Phil Abraham. This episode originally aired on August 16th, 2009. Wow. What's up, 2009? We've made it to August, guys. Uh, hit movies that <laughs> week were District 9, which was great. G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, less great. And The Time Traveler's Wife, which was uh, something. Uh, other movies still in theaters that week included 500 Days of Summer, because once upon a time we lived in a day when we had two Joseph Gordon-Levitt movies. Uh, Julie and Julia and Ponyo. The number one single this week was Black Eyed Peas' I Got a Feeling, a song that has never left my mind. I know. This is a big problem because now it's going to be stuck in my head all day. <laughs> well, and it stays number like spoiler alerts for history, but uh, it stays number one for quite a while. So I don't think that's going to change. I'm not convinced it's ever been off the charts yet because <laughs> they Fair. still play the damn thing. That's a night's going to be a good night. <laughs> okay. It's March 1963 and Sterling Cooper is now firmly under British rule. Don and Sal take a business trip. Peter and Ken share a promotion. Joan and John Hooker navigate the new organizational structure. And not once does anyone use the phrase, the British are coming. It is very disappointing. <gasps> I guess they're already there. They should have done that in season two <laughs> when they sold them. I'm retroactively disappointed that no one used the phrase, the British are coming, leading up to now. Okay, real quick. So the deal for... The merger and the aforementioned British rule was that Duck set up this deal and then Duck goes to work somewhere else. So Duck was supposed to be the Lane Price. He was supposed to be the like new boss crossover between Putnam Pal and Lowe and their acquisition of Sterling Cooper. Mm -hmm. He was going to be be king. Then, in, as we'll recall in the finale, he he implodes in that meeting, and the and the Putnam Pal and Lowe folks from the guy from the nanny um, kick Duck out of the meeting. So the merger still goes ahead. The merger has gone ahead. But Duck Phillips is out, despite having been one of the catalysts for the sale of Sterling Cooper okay. to the British farm. Okay, firm. I'm with it. And we just don't know. It doesn't matter what happened to him. Okay. He just destroyed himself, I guess, we assume. Cool, cool, cool. Which is great. Which is fine, because we get Lane Price. Yeah. And we get this like very exciting situation going on. With old Pete and little Kenny Cosgrove. <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember when we hated Ken? Yeah. Remember when I still hate Ken? <laughs> or I no, mean, no, I no. Kind of... I was thinking, remember when I still hate Pete? Because I was thinking about not hating Pete. No, I only just love Ken more after this episode. Obviously. Yeah. This is, yeah. Go ahead. No, I didn't have anything. I was just agreeing. I just do. And I hate that I do, but I do. Well, like... I feel like they're giving us some reasons to like him. So at least it's like semi-justified at this point, at, at least on an episode by episode basis. This is, this one's fine. <laughs> yeah. And it's but been it's interesting kind of going through on this, this rewatch, because this was more, 
the Ken Cosgrove that I remember and that when I, I think back on on Mad Men and, and Ken specifically, this is more like the the, the version of Ken or, or the Ken that uh, pops to my mind and not so much, you know, real gross Lothario early season one Ken. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of interesting. He's Ken's been a bit of a journey. I mean, all the characters are a journey, but uh, I feel like Ken's probably done the most so far. And I mean, we'll see what happens in the future of kind of like a 180 on how I felt about them compared to mm-hmm. season one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it seems like in the very beginning, because we noted there was like a big difference between the pilot being shot and then the rest of the show um, finally being started. It's like they didn't fully know exactly what they wanted to do with Ken or once they cast him and got him in the part, they recognize what an excellent foil he actually is for Pete, uh, mm-hmm. starting from his thoughtful short story getting published. <laughs> Maybe we'll just say that, like, once he got such positive reinforcement on his, like, gentle artistic endeavors that he decided to, like, drop some of the, like, grossness. Yeah. Oh, I don't have to do this performative misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) I could just be like, cool, go with the flow guy. I'm going to be myself. I had better parents. (laughs) It, It is interesting how, like, the point of of using him as a foil for for peter which they definitely do and especially in this episode but ken has also functioned in kind of that that writer creative capacity as like a foil for kinsey as well Mm -hmm. so like they've definitely like found a way to give aaron stanton kind of more to kind of work with in a way and then different kind of narrative functions for ken as a character as opposed to maybe some of the other kind of foils I'm thinking and we can probably get into it more later in the episode and then kind of as the the season and the series continues but I know we've talked about before Roger being in some ways a foil for for Don and how some of the ways in which Roger reacts to a situation I feel like it's designed to make Don look better so we're more on Don's side by extension and we haven't seen a lot of you know Roger being foils necessarily for other characters but it's kind of like you can stat can put ken wherever because now i'm just remembering um was in, when harry looks at the pay stubs it's ken's pay stub that he gets upset mm-hmm. about back in the mm-hmm. past so it's just it's interesting how like they're using ken as kind of a foil for out for that whole um junior executive crew yeah i mean ken does also kind of fall into this like white male confidence thing where like things just do seem to go for him but at the same mm-hmm. time once we got past the early stuff, he's not like super Machiavellian about how he achieves things. He's not this like f- like machismo fragile fragile thing that we see the others being guilty of and then seeing you know themselves suffer for it. Uh, so I'm not super mad at it. So just real quick before we get into this whole Pete and Ken thing um I have never once thought about who actually was head of accounts like I knew that Pete wanted that job but I never thought about the fact that he was like actively trying to take that job from someone who already had that job yeah I mean I I vaguely remember that also Duck told him he was gonna get it so yeah. it was kind of interesting how he seemed surprised by it. But at the same time, since uh, Duck isn't there anymore, I suppose. 
Right. Plus, it was him not being fired. So that was also a nice surprise. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting to to your point, Melissa, how the idea of like Peter being ambitious and wanting to be head, head of accounts, it goes back to very, very ambitious Pete in, in season one. Right. So Don's made partner and Peter approaches Don and wants to be demands to be made head of accounts. Um, that's when they bring in Duck. This is all was all the result of um, Roger's heart attack in season one and, and how kind of quite a down. We had the new normal of season two. Now we have this whole upset. Apparently, Bert Peterson was head of accounts for for a hot minute and then has now gone. And it's how we kind of looped it looped it back in and yeah i mean even three years later from being you know junior executive in 1962 a co-head of accounts in 1963 it's still pretty impressive mm-hmm. but how are they going to be heads of account without bert peterson's rolodex guys <laughs> it's impossible i would say it was fun but like it's also a Bert's family situation that leads to that outburst isn't isn't fun but it, i don't know yeah. myriad of thoughts about <laughs> that performance it was it was a really good moment like for as little screen time and as much time as we got with peterson it was pretty great i have to say yeah um but uh speaking of pete being told he gets the job one i loved how like easily price just kind of drops the information being like yeah we're making you head of accounts it's totally cool but i really love that he starts off with, I can't speak for everyone here, but I like you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so low-key. And, and this is like a thing we do on, um, on the Daily Nightly. Every episode, we kind of like pick out lines that are like low-key Jane Austen burns. And this, this is just like the British coming in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally, totally. This is a low-key burn. This is a low-key Austen burn. Well, and then right after that, we have Ken doing a low-key burn on Pete, and he doesn't even realize he's doing it. <laughs> when he's like, well, I wouldn't be much of an account man if I didn't ask how much it pays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just so, like a fun way where the show is like reminding us, going like, Pete's kind of an idiot. Like, Pete desperately wants this job, and for what? Like... We have, like, no tangible proof that he would be even good at this job, and then they're just reminding you one more time. Yeah, even the, I don't know, it's just so funny. Like, the one thing he could have done that could have shown that he had, like, an account's mind, he doesn't. But Ken does. (laughs) Well, I think we get a hint in what he's looking for when he calls Trudy and tells her the news and immediately is like, I should tell my mom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, And Trudy brings the good advice because she is such a pure and wonderful and like capable person she tells him don't go to the well there's no water there and that is like so many people in this show could really do with that advice so many people just like in general like this is good (laughs) advice Trudy don't don't look at me it is like a good phrase someone should someone should cross stitch that and she's like wonderful in this whole conversation because Pete's like, "What are you doing?" And he at she says she tells him what she's doing, and then he asks, "Oh, how are they?" She says, "Since when do you care? <laughs> What's up with you, fucking weirdo?" And then <laughs> <laughs> when he's like, "I'm already drunk," she says, "Good for you." <laughs> That's so supportive and also same. <laughs> Oh, Pete really doesn't recognize how good he has it with her. I know. Ugh. Trudy. He, like, kind of low-key burns her later when he is, like, 
why can't I have everything I want when I want it? And she's, and he's like, or what is, is it? Um, why can't I have everything good all at once? Like, I feel like that's kind of a low-key burn on Trudy, maybe because they can't get pregnant, and I might just being sensitive, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Trudy took it a little bit that way. Like, oh, you think our marriage, like, isn't all the way all the good things? Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who's, jo- who's, like, basically promised to make your entire, you know, promised her entire life to make you happy, and you're like, nothing is good enough. Yeah, it's just, oh, he sucks. He'll Hate. never be satisfied. No, he's like, an ambitious man. She acts like that's a good thing. Lady, come on. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's fine it's, for your dad because he seems like he is genuinely a good man, but like it's Pete. Yeah, no, it's all about status and like some feeling of like validation that his existence isn't worth nothing. He's a hundred percent that guy who like can't he can't celebrate his own victories unless someone else is also suffering a loss. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm. And, like, who gets mad about civil rights for others because somehow it'll mean less civil rights for him. He's that guy. Yeah, Pete's very confused about what is pie and what is not. <laughs> that took a second. <sighs> I like that they have these, like, parallel lines. Not parallel. Kind of. With Pete, where when he is first getting called into uh, Price's office, he's like, I can't live like this. Like, he can't live with the, like uncertainty of like if he's getting fired or like what's going on with the office and then later when he's talking to Trudy about his shared promotion he says he can't live with this it's like Pete what do you want like you have job security now (laughs) like you Pete just can't live he can't that's his twitter bio (laughs) can I live (laughs) what do you both think about Lane's approach to um, promoting both Ken and Pete to kind of co-heads of accounts and, and how he how he kind of went about it in both those scenes with both of them. It, it kind of, this is a, well, it's not interesting in terms of like the books, but I guess in terms of the show, the show airing, the show's airing, but it kind of reminded me of season two Tyrion Lannister a bit when he's trying mm-hmm. to find out who, who the leak is to Cersei and he's like mm-hmm. telling, you know, Baelish and everyone else like, um, different things to find where the leak is wasn't totally the same thing but it kind of reminded me that and that lane is playing kind of 3d chess a little bit by choosing selectively to not tell can and not tell pete that it's it's a shared role and that basically they're they're throwing them in the ring and, and giving them both a tryout i don't for me i don't know if i think it's necessarily the worst idea but i don't know if i endorse kind of the, the lazy fair i guess not really hands off the kind of un the um sins of omission i guess i should say in mm-hmm. terms of not being open and upfront with them at first and i was curious what you both thought about that it's sort of interesting because it is it does seem like it does seem like something where he is trying to pit them together and cosgrove even you know calls them out on it or at least acknowledges it to Pete but at the same time he also uh, Price demonstrates himself to be someone who is a fairly decent thoughtful considerate individual um, who's not out for blood and he doesn't give the appearance of someone who's trying to like um, work out all these kind of like machinations behind the scenes and try to destroy everything because he says a lot of things throughout the episode where you're like oh that's like 
that's kind of a good person that you want running the business, you know, like when they decide to postpone firing uh, Peterson because they found out that his wife was going uh, radiation. So they wanted to wait a little bit longer or when he chastises uh, what's his bucket, Uh, John Hooker for um, he what's he say? He says, we we just fired, you know, a third of our. Yeah, we're not going to go through the pockets of the the dead that we've just laid to ruin, basically. And you're like, okay, so getting some sense that he's not that uh, cold-blooded, but contrast that to this decision, it's very interesting and a little confusing. It's just sneaky because I see the benefit in, like, in doing this and seeing how they both react to it but Mm. it just is it's a little shadier than i am like fully willing to say oh good job (laughs) yeah you don't really see him um enjoying or savoring or even witnessing really the the two of them at conflict but maybe there's just a longer game there that he's not paying he's not alluding to yet well and ken even says like they want us to hate each other. I mean, in a lot of ways, this kind of does prove that Ken's like probably more capable for the job <laughs> in that he's like totally cool. And that what's his bucket? Pete is the one who can lose his shit and let it all go to ruin and they'll be able to get rid of him completely anyways. Ken's just happy to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> he's so happy to be there he's just like writing down all these names and i love it and i love the dead look in pete's eyes as he's just like i don't get any of the good stuff but he gets good stuff he gets procter and gamble and he gets gillette he technically even gets one of like what we would have considered ken's accounts because he gets us which Which, like go ahead sorry i was gonna say which ken just seemed understandable he's like yeah okay oh yeah you're right that got a little fucked up (laughs) (laughs) well and pete has lucky strike too which we know is like a pretty like long-term historic account that (sighs) that's the like cigarettes right so like that that's like not that's like not nothing but like pete's also like a little annoyed about all the the o's on the the creative column on his accounts too so don't know what that's about actually i think i know what that's about why he's he might not be happy with working with peggy after the truth bomb she dropped on him last season so i guess that's something to watch in in future episodes yeah for sure yeah we got very little peggy in this episode oh okay so before we move on i want to make sure that we talk about pete and ken's conversation in the elevator when they both think that they're about to be the other one's boss Mm -hmm. which again not to keep harping on harking harping not to keep harping on how great ken is in this episode i mean he seems totally (laughs) at ease when he goes to the elevator it's pete who instigates everything and Uh you can see on his face he's really trying not to say anything but he can't not say anything and when he does it's so smug and condescending because he thinks he's so above uh ken now yeah, and there's even, like, a difference in the things that they're saying. Like, Pete is trying to make sure that, like, Ken knows that, like, oh, I I 
I respect your work. I've always been very vocal about it, kind of saying, like, I'm about to be your boss, but, like, just know it's fine because, like, I think that you do good work. And then Ken is, like, I mean, we find out later that Pete is not being genuine at all because he's immediately, like, well, you're not even good. Um, But Ken is, like, oh, I just, like, thank you for, like, basically, like, being in the trenches with me, like, supporting me and, like, so gracious making me know that like i'm i'm good enough to do this job and like i you know he could be talking about like you know thanks for your support while i become your boss but like it's still it would still play if he's just saying like this whole entire time that we've been working on accounts together like you know we've been in the trenches together like it's because of you know this whatever partnership that i've been able to like do this job i don't know it just seems really genuine and like uh, like a better tack to take to be like humbling himself in front of Pete when he knows he's about to take like Pete's dream job like saying mm. like oh you don't know this yet but when I come become your boss like you're still gonna have this memory of me saying like you're part of the reason why I got here anyway it's just like so so much fucking nicer <laughs> yeah it's very different from like Pete's uh good job old sport nice try and can can like presumably assumes that Pete doesn't know about his news and is just like if the if the roles were reversed Ken you could see this version of Ken being just saying it because you know they watched someone they looked up to or who was above him I guess uh lose their job horribly there have been a lot of people fired they've managed to survive it and they're like we made it to the other side it's great I did think it was like kind of funny and weird whenever he was like maybe things will settle down now and I'm like as far as the two of you know, y'all don't have a boss right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it like I think when they go home and they rehash the day in their head, they're gonna be like, "Oh, I should have known." It's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. So, I think it's something we can. I uh, again, I have like no memory of the show anymore, but I'm really looking forward to seeing more of what they're setting up here between these two very different individuals. Mm-hmm. What about you, Matt? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to kind of continue to, to watch and, and see what, what happens and, and how it all shakes out. Cause I mean, I remember, I remember some things, but I don't remember everything. And so it's like, Oh, that's how that fits. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, rediscovering what happens there. I so before we go on because just like one more thing for the both of you one are you happy that this is where we ended up with Ken after the person that he was in the beginning I'm gonna assume we're on the positive because we love him so much now but like do you think he's at a risk of becoming kind of a a caricature accessory character and not like a fully realized individual I hope that's not the case It'll be probably hard for me to make a sound judgment <laughs> yeah. because I love him. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think as we kind of we started this conversation talking about how over the last two seasons on one episode, Ken has functioned to narrative has functioned Ken has functioned narratively to provide kind of a foil or to support other characters 
stories, right? And mm. and we get a fuller picture of of who Ken is, yes. But again, that starts with when Ken becomes a published author. But narratively, that create you know functions to to teach us something and you know cause conflict for for Kinsey and you know kind of go through down the way even um last season and gold violin episode um Ken's functioning in that to create drama for like and storylines for for Sal's character right so while I agree that like this is the Ken Cosgrove I remember and the one that I definitely like better than um (laughs) season one Ken I don't know if the show has shown us anything so far that will make Ken kind of a, a featured character on his own or his own storylines that aren't in service of other members of the cast, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. And now I'm thinking, like, I hope that they just keep him in this position because we get enough <laughs> of him and he's a nice guy and it, he's fun to watch and, like, enjoyable. If I feel like if they make him a main character, he'll be shitty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or you'll probably just feel really bad for him. Those are really your only two choices. Yeah. Or both. Uh, do we want to move to um, the next section? Oh, yes. Another rivalry, if you can call it that. I don't know if I'd call it a balanced one. J and J. I'm just going to call him Hooker because uh, I'm going to get very easily confused with John and Joan. Well, at least we don't have two Bobbies this season. Oh, God. All right, so with Joan and Mr. Hooker, um, where do we want to start? Because there is a lot to unpack here in terms of gender roles and norms in the workplace. And John Hooker, Mr. Hooker, is ostensibly Lane's executive associate, he's secretary, executive associate, and, and he views himself as above shown above the other secretaries in in the pool because he isn't he isn't a typist he is in his own mind more akin to something like a a chief of staff he's he's the right hand man exactly sitting seated at the right hand of the bottom that's the second hamilton reference in this episode (laughs) matt get snap out of it snap out of it um uh so like the first okay interestingly our first impression isn't him at his job, doing his job. It's him distracting other people from doing their job. Uh, flirting with a secretary who is, he's aware is engaged, first of all. Um, and uh, Peggy's not the first one to be like, what, what? These women have work to do. Uh, and on top of that, he's also dressed significantly significantly differently than the secretaries who you know are in their cute outfits but he's got a suit on he's dressed nicer than some of the executives what's because he's british it's because he's british which he really does and i it definitely sets him apart at least visually and in his own mind well and even the way the costume lane too is because he has this, um, oh, it's, it's, he's still wearing like a three piece, the three piece. but, but it's like a miss. There's, there's an actual term for it that I've forgotten that I used to know in my other life, but, um, it's not the same. So like he has like a contrasting vest and like, it's, it's a three piece, but it's, it's 
it's not deconstructed that's not the word but anyways it it is a different style of suiting than what the americans in the office are wearing and like hooker's part of that too and i think that that's an interesting kind of visual cue to set them kind of both apart very like savile row oh totally 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 and like the way he's introduced as, as flirt as flirting with um peggy's secretary like it that's something we've seen and we've expected from the junior executives, but technically speaking, if you're talking about the org structures and the the hierarchy of the office, he doesn't even have, like, isn't even of the, the same level yet, is dressed le- better than he is and, you know, views himself very differently from, I think, how others view that position. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and like, and it, is he feeling he's afforded that because he works for Lane, right? Like, so, because when Jane worked for for Dawn, she, you know, was, was, you know, being more exercising power maybe she didn't have in the office over some of the other kind of, like, executives because she worked for Dawn. So does, does Hooker feel that way because he works for Lane? Partially maybe yes, but is also because of his gender. And Lindsay, like, I don't know, there's, there's, there's layers here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole being his being like the only male quote unquote secretary is definitely an unspoken thing. And Joan, but like even Joan points out to him he's not a secretary. Um, but it's so I annoying. I thought she was being he... like kind of shitty when she said that. You Despite think so? Despite your title, you're not a secretary. Like basically saying like, all right, you can believe whatever you want about it, but I'm just telling you like. Because the way she says, like, a truck is a lorry and, a, and an elevator is a lift, like, we get it. Like, calling something different makes it different in your small mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we've seen her in the past, like, humble someone who got a little too big for their britches mm-hmm. for their position anyways. And it is kind of her doing the same thing in a way. But she does seem to acquiesce to it more than if it were one of her girls. Mm-hmm. But um, I I really enjoyed the way she did point out all the ways in which he was incompetent and how he dealt with Bert Peterson's um, firing. And like, sure, you're not a secretary, but like, this is how a person who was good at their job would have done it if you were good at your job, too. Mm -hmm. And but like, like I said, you know, she kind of acquiesces it to it. And there's this like really because she looks like she's being pleasant and talking in a nice, pleasant voice because he already complained about being addressed as John and not Mr. Hooker. But there was something in like a tightness in her expression in the way she spoke and kind of forced it to be sound kind of light that I think a lot of women would recognize themselves having done in the workplace before when really like there's this joke among doctors and nurses that one way that a nurse tells a doctor to uh, fuck you is by saying yes doctor (laughs) which makes me laugh because I actually say that a lot Um, (laughs) it's that same thing and I've had doctors be all like I know what that means all right quit being a dickhead (laughs) Mm -hmm. and John Hooker doesn't recognize it well and like Rod and this is maybe skipping ahead a bit but like Roger even comments how the the new British overlords don't always understand their inflections Mm -hmm. right and don't always interpret it correctly so not untrue it does seem like kind of like a dated idea 
uh, I mean, everything about this is fairly dated, but <laughs> kind of not really. Um, that, oh, even the important business, like secretarial business of a man's job can only be handled by a man. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of, I don't know exactly, I don't have a full point to make, but I just, I wonder if there's something to, like, for one... Mm, I like it's hard to get to where I want to get to without stepping in like a whole bunch of landmines. But for one, <laughs> why is Price's secretary a man? Like, do you guys not hire women as like executive assistants in Europe? Also, like, are you like this is so functionally he's basically a secretary. Why do you give him some other title? Like, is you, like your man secretary is like too good <laughs> for that title, so you have to differentiate it so that he feels like he's better than like all the women in this office. Like, I just have questions. I'm I'm just interested. I I honestly don't know, but it is it does seem like a, a seemingly different paradigm being shoved into the existing culture in this office, and. I mean, it is a bit mean, but I do pre and <laughs> stinky to use the word of the episode, I guess. The way Joan just reminds John how things work here. Mm-hmm. Like she, she even offers him the office and uh, that has someone they just fired, the name of someone they just fired still on the door and even tells him that he'll get his own girl that she can, ch- that he can choose from. And he is so pleased himself he thinks like because his company bought this one he's a Mm -hmm. little above everyone he gets his own girl and he's the kind of little shit to take credit for that idea even when he's like kind of getting like in not in trouble but he's getting like reprimanded for it and he's still not willing to be like oh it was joan's idea (laughs) well and it was joan coming up with that idea is is so like quintessentially joan and that she's kind of attacking a couple different issues with with one solution of the office right like she's managing she's managing hooker by also making him feel like she's recognizing his Mm -hmm. his status in a way because like peggy comments on i'm sorry what's her her secretary's name i don't recall Lola, she comments on on Lola's flirting with John and the distraction that that Mr. Hooker is, and so Joan's like, okay, I need him out of my pool. Let's let's get him in this office, and then also he feels satisfied because his station's been recognized, mm-hmm. right? And so, because that is just what Joan is so good at, and you mm-hmm. never see her like cackling off in the corner being like, hey, hey, hey. she just does it, and you're like, all right, well, mm-hmm. that's that. I guess we'll move on then. I love her. She's so good. And that's when uh, Hooker has this moment of looking at the Ant Farm, which is also gynocracy, gynocracy, however you say it. Oh! And he comes to the recognition of like, huh, I'm not in charge. Cool. Right. I don't know... I'm sure that this this is just, like, sensitivity, but, like, I don't love the term gynocracy. So I looked it up, 
And the queen ant of a, a colony used to be called a gyne, G-Y-N-E. And I guess they don't call it that anymore. Yeah, but they call gynecologists gynecologists, which yeah. means vagina doctor, which makes me feel like the word means this office is being ruled by a vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in many ways, sometimes the men are led by vaginas. So yeah, absolutely. Fair. Well, and what's interesting about Hooker making that comment to to Lane Price is Lane's like, oh, I haven't noticed. And like, ultimately, right now, the buck stops with Lane. Like, like I, we've talked before how Joan uses the box that society and and male supremacy put her in to try and exercise her agency and and power where she's can and where she's afforded. So like I definitely can see and like understand what Hooker means in his reading of like implying that like Joan is good at her job and thus kind of rules the 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 playground rules the school. But at the same time I don't I don't think that's entirely accurate and that that's the truth because as we've we've seen even like last season when she's temporarily emphasis on the temp part helping Harry with reading scripts and and all of that like all of that power all that agency in in the workplace that she has worked hard through her you know own relationship building and her own kind of skill set to achieve in the office that can all get taken away from her on the whim of someone like Roger Sterling. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't know if it actually I can understand through the spheres of influences and power that that Hooker does and doesn't have why he feels that way. But I don't know if it's necessarily 100 percent accurate. And by don't know, I mean, I don't think it is. (laughs) I want to make a distinction between the company as a whole and like just the physical office because I think that Joan does 100% control how the office itself works out you know taking that and it's you can't really do this but like taking that outside of like how the company's power structures works like if Joan was left to her own devices, there would be, like, never any disruptive conflict in this office because she really knows what she's doing. So I think, like, when it comes to office functionality, like, that is all Joan. And since that's what John Hooker's having a problem with, <laughs> that's why he's like, she is really this whole thing. And that's also why Price hasn't noticed it because he hasn't, like, ran up against it and been like, this isn't working for me. And Joan's like shut up and do what I tell you to do and then it will feel like it's working for you (laughs) yeah I mean you look at like um like bee colonies and ant colonies all the workers and soldiers are the women they just kind of make things run anyways but you have the executives the partners they're all at a level that doesn't need to be need to bother with it they just need to the work they just need it to work that's all they don't need to deal with like these little more minute details going on so, of course, it doesn't touch him. But because of his position, because that hooker isn't one of those executives, he has to sit. The only other place for him to sit at is at that same level. So he has to be he has to learn how to play ball at that level. 
And I looked it up. So the word uh, gyne, G-Y-N-E, comes from the Greek term for female or woman. Uh, yeah. Um, at the same time, I really loved um, Joan while they were at the elevator with Peggy. Peggy already is complaining about work and everyone there. And Joan's just like, I'm not at work yet. Not that Peggy listens, but I appreciate that she's like, ah, no, 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 no. Don't put this on me outside of my hours when I'm still not yet on. Uh, but even then, as Peggy talks, she still, Joan still defends Lola, talking about uh, all the stuff going on with her wedding planning, which is incredibly stressful, a thing that I have no interest in myself because I've seen how stressful it can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Peggy refers to Hooker as Money Penny. She is so quick to be like, do not call him that. She's so adamant, just like, he hates it. Don't do it. He's repulsive. I hate him. I don't like him, but don't call him that. It's like, it's so ingrained. Like, we're going to still be, we're going to have peace in our workplace. We're going to just do our job and make things work. She says, like, Oh, he's worse than a doorman. And I would just like to point out that, like, <laughs> doormen are great and fine. And there's nothing wrong with them or being one. <laughs> there have been a lot of good doormen in this show. Sal met one he liked a lot. <laughs> uh, one more thing about uh, John Hooker before we move on. Around the same time, he appeared on the show Bones, which I was still watching at the time, playing a nerdier, science-y kind of character. Uh, in my head, he's just very weaselly, and I don't know if it's just a combination mm -hmm. of this character and his Bones character blending in. But as soon as I heard it, that nasally kind of tone that he has, I was like, oh, I'm having flashbacks. So I was prepared to not like him. <laughs> like that accent, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look... Not to fetishize British culture because, like, they're the great colonizer of the world, except for my people. They didn't manage that. But I'm not disagreeing with Lola on the accent either. Yeah. It's She's like, it's, it's super innocent. I just want to listen to him talk. It's hard to argue with Lola on that front. You've all listened to the uh, English men read poetry, like, eight tracks playlist, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. That's a good one. Did we want to get into um, Don and, and his associated storylines? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So much. To start, the opening, fantastic. Really wonderfully well done. It might be so far one of my like favorite moments or sequences from the show that we've we've seen. It just, it felt like... It felt like a ghost story or like a haunted house or like, like obviously like it's not super playing like Madman doesn't really do like horror in that sense, but like it pushed all of my like, you know, smaller romanticism, gothic ghost story, like sort of, sort of buttons the idea of, of kind of, and it's not really Dawn's memory because I mean, you don't remember being born, but it's his perceptions of mm -hmm. yeah right um no, no that you remember you just don't remember being born it's it's, it's complicated how, how it works like that um metaphysically no you're 100 correct um so it's not literal memories but it's still the stories it's it's this past this these kind of relationships that 
are haunting him and carrying with him that he's he's thinking about and, and this is where like the ghost story element kind of comes in it for me mm. it's the middle of the night he's up he's again he's you know warming the milk so he can give it to betty so he can sleep she betty's very pregnant at, at this point and it's he's coming up on his actual birthday not don don drape the old og don draper's birthday but Dick Whitman's birthday and it's all these like interplays and these ghosts are coming out to play for him. And like at the start of the episode, it's just kind of really sweet to see Don doing something nice for his very pregnant wife, Betty. Mm. Like, I mean, it, it's Don, so it doesn't last till the end of the episode. <laughs> but like in that, in that moment, it's just, you know, it, you can't yeah. see me, but I'm giving a thumbs up. That's thoroughly no. That's it. so awesome because I didn't. There was something about it that was really familiar, and I couldn't figure out if it was like that opening in Westworld with the repeated days, or lost with what's his bucket in the hatch in his routine. Desmond. But it's actually um, the Haunting of Hill House show that was probably more what yes. I'm remembering with the flashbacks to his not memory. Uh, that's in, so fascinating. No, that's definitely what was going on. Uh, yeah, no, there was a moment I didn't, well, I didn't realize that he was doing that for Betty. I thought it was for himself. And I was just like, that's not a very Don Draper thing to do. Wouldn't a Don Draper thing to do just to be, have a drink of whiskey, then try to go to sleep. Well, and, and the whole moment to where, when he's skimming kind of the, um, I don't know what the proper term for is it, but like that, like skin or the covering of that, you know, the when skin. she starts, when you're boiling the milk, the skin, when he's like skimming it off and it's like, just giving me the like revealing like taking off that outer layer and like what's inside and kind of I, I just it 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 all worked for me <laughs> it all worked for me yeah what did you think what did you think of the opener melissa i was originally very confused <laughs> and then i think like once i watched the episode twice and caught all of the like nuance around the birthday and then thinking about like betty being so pregnant it all uh came more together for me but the first time i watched the episode i was literally like how are we starting the episode with this we're starting the season with this what is happening right now <laughs> <laughs> well and in some in some ways, like, it's trying to be the, like, last time on Mad Men. Like, this is, like, you know, all of all of Don's kind of, like, backstory in a nutshell, but it doesn't, like, if you've been watching it kind of like we have or would have watched it back in 2009 where there's, like, years in between mm-hmm. some of the, the reveals and even, like, going back to, to season one when we start start learning some of Don's backstory as, as Dick and everything else. Um, it's expecting you to remember some of those those details too, and I think the first time you see it having maybe not necessarily, you know, been thinking about it or encountering it right, you know, recently, because um, some of the stuff we would have been watching kind of last fall, right? You went through it. It can be a little disorienting, and it's it's catching you up, but it's not holding your hand either, which I think can be be good or bad depending, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you've got Dick's birthday, and then you've got this pending, impending birth of his third child because Betty is very pregnant by this point. Uh, and you're right, Matt. He was so nurturing and sweet, and there was just complete sincerity in the way he was trying to comfort Betty. There was this ease and relax, uh, relaxed dynamic between the two of them, and 
it didn't have like all the tension that we'd seen in the past couple seasons it just made me think like this is probably who they were pretending to be uh in like season one and who they probably were the first time she was pregnant with sally and the whole time i just did not trust it and i didn't want to trust it i wanted to, well I, I just could feel myself like falling in for whatever this thing is going on and uh yeah also i was really um struck by how much his father with his disheveled hair resembled a disheveled hair don draper <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> just so much slang oh i did think specifically of you melissa though when the uh midwife revealed why he was named dick wait did i miss that yeah oh my goodness oh my remember God. the the prostitute just kept saying if you get me in trouble low-key if you get me pregnant oh yeah, I'm going oh, to yeah cut oh, off yeah, your dick oh, and yeah. boil it in pig fat and that, oh, those were her last words as she my. died God. And the midwife says he's named Dick after like his mother's last wish. Oh my god, I totally <laughs> I totally missed that connection. I like screamed it when I heard it and I was like, I need to know how Melissa reacted to it. Oh my god, I, I I'm an idiot. <laughs> so at least I got my reaction. <laughs> uh next thing you know though, uh Betty's talking about how she packed Don's suitcase because he's off to another trip. And as we know, Don does trips super well. Worth again clocking. We have when the idea of like Sally breaking the suitcase and, and that as well. We have more suitcase metaphors so that has continued from, from season two as well. So we also have this kind of interesting. Yeah, we also have this wonderful line from Betty, who once again just only has the nicest things to say about her daughter, uh, talking about uh, taking to your toes like a little lesbian. Yeah. Oh, oh. Betty. Not, oh. not great. Not great. Um, yeah. Two things. Yeah. Hit me. Previously boiled milk. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> gross as fuck don out here looking like me when i'm drunk in college trying to make a freaking garlic shells pasta side <laughs> um and also when don is betty's like i can't sleep ever and he's like well at least you don't look tired i'm like that's not a nice thing to say but then it's like okay but betty liked it so i guess whatever I'm not going to be mad at it because, you know, that's like probably one of Betty's most concerns about actually being tired. Looking tired, looking pregnant. Never mind the whole making a human being and being very close to popping it out. <laughs> what did we think of the the business trip? So I guess I'll set the scene, scene a bit. Um, London Fog is one of Sterling Cooper's accounts, and Don and Sal are sent to Baltimore. Good morning, Baltimore, um, to meet with the London Fog folks to kind of assure them that everything is hunky-dory, despite, um, Bert Peterson's dismissal. Um, yeah, so what did we, how did we feel about Don and Sal's business trip? 
I mean, first of all, I was surprised as hell that they, to deal with London fog, flew to Baltimore. Well, apparently like, there's not even fog in London, so this whole thing is a ruse. Ah. Lane's just so, like, it's just a stupid name. There's no fog. It was coal dust, which isn't entirely <laughs> inaccurate, but it's just, like, again, culture clash. <laughs> not untrue. Except the mystery. Uh, we have someone else mistaking Don on public transport once again for someone else. Uh-huh. But this time he plays along with it because it's not actually belying some sort of secret past identity. And Sal comes along for the ride, too. Yeah, it, Sal's just like, for sure, I'm Sam. Let's do it. I don't know what we're doing, but let's do it. I was very fascinated <laughs> by how he was like, I have never seen a flight attendant that game before. Because it was interesting how she's just like zoned in on that guy as to see if he needed a refill, ignoring like the four rows of people in front of him. Yeah. Uh, and that is where... I turn on Don for the episode. What did you guys think of him pretending to be someone else again? Um, decidedly mixed. Yeah, <laughs> mostly ne- mixed to negative. <laughs> mostly negative. I mean, on the plane, it was whatever. It was just Don being a little cheeky. But then when he says the thing about oh, I keep going places and finding myself in the same place, I'm like, what? Oh lord! And you're shocked and surprised. <laughs> by this like 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 it's a yeah like it's a surprise and that he doesn't put himself in these positions it's just they just happened to him it's not his fault (laughs) i'm kidding yeah i could i could hear both your faces if that makes sense (laughs) who's gonna start first (laughs) um no i like i don't i think like you say when it's just on the plane or if like you know they were just um, they being Sal and Don, like, had met someone in the bar and, 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 you know, whatever. If it had just been that kind of innocent, hey, we're on a business trip, let's, you know, let's pretend to be someone else for, like, 10 or 20 minutes or whatever, just, like, in a conversation. Like, even at dinner, I, it seemed, like, fun pretending that they were, like, secretly, like, FBI or something on the DL trying to suss out some mafia yeah, try, Even try that to was like... Jimmy, Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Um, like, like, so that's, like, that's, that's fun. Like, like, it's, I, I get it. It's, it's where it then takes that turn towards something else that's, that's not as light and not as fun. And then it's like, and then when it takes that kind of full turn to, you know, that, that affair and the the flight attendant who's that, that's her name. Let's look that up so I can Baltimore is kind of Shelly, the the flight attendant. So when when Don and Shelly go back to to Don's room or even before that the hallway, she's like implies that she's getting married to it as well. So lots of things with engagement in this episode. So like this is her last chance and then Don is like, you get lots of chances. Gross. Uh, One. And it's like um, I definitely took that multiple layers like oh you get multiple chances to both sleep with whoever you want to while you're married and also at your marriage if your spouse finds out yeah yeah Yeah. was there because of the light nature did you think there was a chance that don actually wasn't gonna go through with it for even a second 
once he was like, it's my birthday, I'm like, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's really? shown vulnerability. He needs his reward. That's it. That's his thing. Just tell Betty about Dick. Please. Yeah. yeah. He was all very distressing. Great, yeah, not great. Not great, Don. I didn't think we necessarily needed all that time with her, like, undressing for him, too. But I guess it was the balance to all the stuff going on with Sal. I personally was... did not need her being like, people asked me if I was a model, but I wasn't. <sighs> I'm like, do you know who was a model, though? Your fucking wife. Ugh. You know what else I didn't need? Your tiny, sweet daughter wearing this woman's, like, little flight attendant pin. Oh, my God. Goodbye. Next. That moment where he had to come up with a lie really quick. Even though the lie was just, yes, yes, I did that for you. (sighs) Yeah, no, that just seemed like an unnecessary moment to include a woman without her top on. Yeah. Although, and I mean, maybe we can can cut this out because it does not match the the tone of this conversation. Although with it being like AMC as opposed to like HBO or something, I am always impressed in how they uh, cut around and kind of edit and like do do the blocking as to like, you oh, know, with the arms. have nudity without nudity. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's as opposed to like if this had been on HBO or, or whatever, it's like... It, nipples it for all yeah no exactly so it's just it's just i was watching that to too it's just amusing to me how they how they work around that because amc is a, a no no nipples network um, or at least wasn't i am absolutely not like this is not an original thought but i came to it independently but you're right that it, um yeah i feel like flight attendants are getting like very oversexualized here in the 1960s. <laughs> Thinking I about mean, down with between love, down with love this yeah. episode. and probably they yeah. have always been that way, and they still are that way. But I was like, damn, two in a row. Like, okay, flight attendants. I'm sure that you guys are not all this way, and it's fine if you are this way. I just, you know, stereotypes, <laughs> representation. Well, I mean, that's always kind of a thing when it comes to like predominantly female, or historically predominantly female. Um, jobs or careers because you had that with nurses and with teachers as well and then we had that show with uh christina ricci pan am about flight attendants in the 60s that was trying to network tv trying to capitalize on the 60s comeback going on at the time that's a callback to our recent episode on down with love if you haven't <laughs> listened to it please listen to it did we want to talk about sal or can i jump back to my thought about that that last scene with the pin because we just talked about that which we can talk we about the prefer? pin thing and then go back to sal okay so i guess just then building off about that kind of uncomfortableness with the uh the lie that don tells at the end in the pin situation and um when sally apologizes about breaking don's suitcase because she didn't want him to leave again um, Don also has that fun line about I'm going to take it out of your allowance and she's like well I don't have an allowance and it's like then don't break things mm-hmm. um, okay. kind of reminded me of the you're mean you betcha okay um, parenting last season <laughs> right um, but Sally crawls in the bed she's happy that she got this present because her dad thought of her on his business trip well actually he didn't um, and she's like tell me the story of when I was born and Don starts and then 
says he was working late and came home late and then gets like two sentences in and looks to Betty. There's a beat. And then Betty starts telling the rest of the story. I feel like Don wasn't actually there. I feel like that he started a lie. He didn't know what to do. So then he looked to Betty to tell a version of the story. Oh. And I wondered what, mm. what you both thought about that read. Well, I'm sad now. Yeah. Because I was like, it was, to me, just maybe he wasn't in the best state at the time or something. Oh, maybe he was drunk, too drunk to do anything. Also a possibility. But to me, it was just like the whole thing was too emotionally overwhelming for him to do, deal with. And mm-hmm. Betty, being the good wife that she is, the too good of a wife that she is, recognizing that uh, Don needs to be carried across that finish line. Yeah, he needed a moment to brood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think, like, either either thing could be true. He could have been there or, or not been there. And, I mean, I don't remember if we find out empirically in in coming episodes or, or seasons. I, I don't recall that at all. But, like, I think the fact that either read works about the same and says kind of the same thing about Dawn mm. is interesting to me. Uh, sad boy Dawn. Which, who's increasingly harder to sympathize. I want to send uh, Sally Draper this tweet saying, recognize that your parents did the best they can is not meant to excuse them from the very real pain and hurt they may have caused you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyways, this is from Therapy, twi- from therapy Instagram. Sally Draper is one of those fictional child characters that like, I think about a lot. That's <laughs> like what what would have happened to them. And like, I don't know. It's just an interesting thought experiment. Like her and like Pam Buchanan from The Great Gatsby, like Daisy and um, uh, Tom, that's his name, Daisy and Tom's child, I think about a lot in the similar kind of, uh, what would they have been like, those, those poor, poor children? <sighs> Who would they have grown up to be? Anyways... Um, you want to talk about Sal? Uh, usually, yes. (laughs) Shelly, it's been swelly. (laughs) I think he had fun for when it was just a game, pretending to be other people. And then the game was over because there was no one that he wanted to be with. Do you think that he really left his plane ticket at the hotel? Or did he leave something else at the hotel? Oh, no, I think he just didn't want to have to. (laughs) Spend time with Don and possibly talk about it. Fair enough. Except for, like, Don, this is not a thing that Don cares about. Like, he had to process it, but yeah, it's not like he had room to talk. Right. And when, because when Don is like, let me ask you something and you need to be honest. And Don, or Sal's obviously like, I'm panicking. Don's like, (laughs) Listen to this ad breakthrough I had. The only thing that Don is really going to get worked up about with anyone except for a random woman is work. <laughs> but but that whole like pitch conversation on the plane, like it's it's Don approaching, it's Don providing advice based on what he has learned about Sal without like indirect Directly, indirectly. Like, I know that, that that doesn't make sense, but that's kind of what he's doing. It, it's all, again, coded, right? Because, like, the whole idea is not is that whole, like, limit your exposure. 
he like yes he's talking about mm-hmm. London Fog but mm-hmm. he he's talking to Sal right and that's how he's choosing to to address kind of what he mm-hmm. saw which I thought going back to kind of last season and when um the the office finds out that Kurt is gay and is, is openly gay um Don seemingly has a better reaction to finding out that that sells gay than um some of those other folks at the office did especially you know we praised ken earlier but ken's kind of shitty in in that moment last season Mm when when kurt's like i'm gay yeah Um, that was not great ken yeah but it it's clear that or at least my read i shouldn't say it's clear it it seems to me that Don feels he's being compassionate to Sal and providing him with key advice and is seemingly not not coming at the, what he's learned in the same places maybe some of the other characters on the show was. And my question to the both of you in relation to that is, do you think that comes from on feeling like he knows what it's like to kind of keep a secret i think i know what you're coming from like it seems more paternalistic than it is someone who empathizes from a a, coming from a similar place as a liar is that what you're going with that i'm I'm saying that don's advice what i'm suggesting is so far what we've seen even going as far back as season one with his advice to Adam and his advice to, to Peggy um, about moving forward. And, you know, it'll, it'll surprise you how much this, this never happened and different things. Don's advice that he gives people is always what he's already done or the advice kind of continues in his pattern. So in him saying, suggesting to sell to quote, limit your exposure, it's like, okay, you have this, this secret you're in the, you're closeted. Um, you need to be smart about not getting getting caught or make choices to control your image so other people don't find out. So what I'm suggesting is Don is equating he's 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 giving advice to Sal based on his own experiences even though their secrets are very different. Mm. It's like the one like the Don the Don Draper slash Dickwitman um advice column is one size fits all this is what i do sorry that was my dog i don't so like i i don't think it's necessarily the same as the way he's given advice in the past i do think that some of it is him seeing himself as separate as as sal i mean from our perspective there are so many similarities on so many levels this is someone who's leading us a, a, a second another or um, a second life protecting some sort of secret and finding some escape and cheating on his wife um, because he doesn't feel true to himself, but he's not exactly comfortable who that, who either of his selves are fine. Great. But I, but in the past when we've seen Don give advice um, or even chastise someone for doing something that he's guilty for, it's always in my memory, maybe not always, but from the ones that have stuck out in my memory, it's always so much more aggressive, almost as if he's yelling at himself for doing it. Um, But there's, there's like a kindness um, or compassion, like in the way he does it with Sal. 
um, kind of it's it's kind of protective in a way. Uh, so part of me wonders if he doesn't necessarily relate to it on that same level because you know we've seen him in the past addressing people who cheat on their on their spouses too and he's so judgmental and aggressive when you're mm. like buddy what, mm-hmm. what are you doing even but i mean as much as we don't didn't really see the need for those scenes with the half naked flight attendant um it does show you know a parallel going on between the two of them and the similarities mm-hmm yeah, I don't think Don sees himself there because he's just so straight, you know. Right. It is probably the nicest that we like. Probably the most sympathetic I find Don though. Mm-hmm. You know who is not sympathetic? Hmm. Roger. <laughs> I only have one thing written down in my notes for Roger, and it is fucking Roger. Oh, sad meeting. Yeah, that he is late for. It's so. He sucks. God, he does. Sorry, am I late? Did I miss anything? Yeah, just someone's life being ruined. It's fine. Oh, it's that kind of meeting. Sorry. Uh, Roger. Which somehow also is this way. This is also the same meeting that's uh, started with the tentacle porn. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Same no, meeting. Thank, thank you yeah. for bringing, yeah. bringing yeah. up yeah. That, that wonderful. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. <sighs> cool i don't even know how to begin unpacking that (laughs) i mean i actually kind of appreciated more after bert was just like the artist was really focused on the woman's pleasure in this motif Uh and i was just like that's a really nice way of going around the whole octopus thing (laughs) when he says it's like the work like this is how this is what you this is what you equate advertising to in your mind, Bert Cooper. What is happening? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, can I just say, though, also a gift. I don't know if you call that painting a gift, but one gift was all of Bert Peterson's lines. <laughs> um, as he's walking out, he's like, see on the bread lines, fellas, because he's just like, whatever, it's not ending with me. And he announces to the office, fellow comrades in mediocrity, a line I really want to use in real life. Uh, I want you to listen very carefully. You can all go straight to hell. Yep. And drop dead, you limey vulture. So many good lines in so little time. (laughs) And Michael Gaston, who plays Bert, um, he's definitely one of those, oh, that guy actors, because his... Mm -hmm. his his credits are, are quite diverse and, and, and numerous, but uh, to me now, he'll always be Dean from the first season of The Leftovers. Mm. Oh, I didn't even recognize him, but I can see it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, what did you think of your introduction to Lane Price? Um, I was like, oh, the guy from The Expanse, which is funny because I know that Jared Harris <laughs> is like extremely famous. But the two he things I prolific. Kn- the two things I know him from are The Expanse, which is like extremely genre, and fucking Carnival Row on Amazon, which is also pretty genre. Pretty genre. very genre on brand for both him and for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I love Jared Harris. 
I think this was actually the first thing I'd ever really seen him in. Oh, wow. Uh, so it, it has some warm feelings in my heart. I enjoyed just to like, just setting like a baseline for his character. I'm like reminded of like how there was an easiness to him being in that position, a confidence. He knew his role. Uh, we've talked about how like kind of sneaky, quote unquote sneaky is, but at the same time, very fairly decent individual, um, He's like people minded as opposed to just like cutthroat and, you know, trying to figure out what people are. He didn't seem particularly threatened by anyone. I know. What, what's your impression of Lane Price? Yeah, I like him. I think he has the potential, potential excuse me, to be um, a good manager. Like, I don't think any of the decisions that he outright made are wrong or that I disagree with. Like, the only thing is I think that, like, maybe uh, – Ken and Pete could have benefited from some like more upfront honesty about their situation. But I mean, people get to make management decisions. So, but I like him. He is British. They are not an effusive people. <laughs> as, it's unbecoming. Uh, Americans don't know how to handle their emotions. Yes, as Hooker reminded it's us. It's unbecoming. Listen, I know. Okay. <laughs> We're doing but our best. Uh, sometimes we are. Sometimes we are. Um, I wanted to point out, though, that my actual first impression of Jared Harris, I think he was on the Craig Ferguson show, and I've not been able to find this episode again. I don't think it exists on the internet anymore. But he was talking about his father, the famed Richard Harris, who probably most of our generation knows as the original Dumbledore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, he was, in his time, uh, one of the like actors, the British-Irish actors who were like a quote-unquote hellraiser of his time. And Jared was telling this story about his dad and Richard Burton, uh, who were the other ones, Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed. They were having their wild and crazy times and they ran out of alcohol and they were so intent on still drinking, but not intent enough to go out to buy more because it may not have been available or because they were too drunk to leave the house. Uh, so they started drinking Elizabeth Taylor's perfume. No! Yeah. And oh, I just, uh... Yeah. That's some real uh, with nail and eye energy right there. That's a lot. But I just remember Jared like being very like, uh, what's the word? Um, I don't know, just very convivial and telling the story and laughing about his father's uh, shenanigans. And that leads into this. So I'm very happy to see Jared Harris here. I'm very happy that it started in season three. Because I did not remember. <laughs> <sighs> so, good start to season three, I think. Yeah, I'm excited. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, like, watching the episode, it felt like the Mad Men I remember. Not to say that, like, the first two seasons didn't. I think the first couple episodes of season one and i know we i'm pretty sure we talked about it back then i found kind of quite jarring and mm -hmm. how it didn't fit my memory of what the show was and at this point now three seasons in it's kind of like we're we're seemingly kind of firing on all all cylinders now and we kind of know what the show is and the show kind of not that it never didn't know what it was doing but like this is as we enter kind of like middle period Mad Men like this is more what is crystallized in my memory as the show I remember mm -hmm. right so 
No, I totally agree. Like there was a lot of stage setting in the first two seasons and yeah. establishing the characters that we know. And yeah. we've we've both talked about how surprised we were how so many big things we remembered happened in the first two episodes alone or two seasons yeah. alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, exciting things to come. Melissa, anything that you're looking forward to or hoping to see this season? Um, I knew going into watching Mad Men about the Draper's two children, and now they apparently have three children, so I want to know why I only thought they had two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How I did not, I was not able to, like, osmosis the knowledge of this baby. I think it's fairly similar to like what Matt was saying. So much of the show's identity is set in the first two seasons. And then yeah. just stuff and so happens. Now there's like this baby. I like was actually surprised to see her still so pregnant because I was like, there's um, okay. a whole ass baby. I know that there are some like characters coming that people are excited about. And probably not excited about. Well, nobody ever tells me, oh, I can't wait till you get to this shit show. <laughs> 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 There are there are a few where people are like, Ugh. but um, that I was perfectly fine with though. So <laughs> yeah, I'm mostly just excited to like get to all this stuff that I know that our friends want to talk to us about, or I guess to me about because I don't know anything <laughs> about Mad Men going forward. <laughs> more Ken Cosgrove, but I'm also really excited about yes, more Ken Cosgrove. Um, I continue to be like not that excited about whatever Don is going to continue to do. I'm just like excited to see who actually like gets to grow and change when I don't think it's going to be Don. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed out about Don. Yeah. Boring. Uh, he didn't age well. <laughs> uh speaking of friends who want to talk, Matt, did we have an email? We did have an email. The subject line is meditations in an emergency. Hi guys. I know I've taken forever to send an email, but something something Don Draper snarky comment about why it took so long. I forgot how much I liked this episode until listening to your podcast. Well, parts of it. All the merger <laughs> stuff was great. By no means am I a Pete fan, but I loved that he went to Don about the merger news and how Duck tried to lure him instead. It was mentioned on the podcast, but Don burning Duck with the fact that he doesn't have a contract was amazing. Unfortunately... <laughs> Duck never, never, unfortunately, Duck never really did the work with Don to even get a hint of that being the case, especially since Don wanted him, and especially since Don wanted him instead of just making Pete head of accounts. It's great. Shows how relationships get built at work. I'm loving the podcast, and even though I've blown past where you guys are, I'm on episodes of season five, I do want to go back and rewatch with you. The day-to-day -day stuff is so good. I've mentioned before that that spoiler alert for 1963 history i've mentioned to annie before that the kennedy assassination has some really true moments to how something like that impacts the agency world particularly a scene with a character and what he says and what he, how he calculates the media loss from it anyway i'm enjoying the podcast and the show thank you for all your work liz well thank you liz for that wonderful email and thank you for listening yes thank yes. you so much oh more emails i love this <laughs> <laughs> Loved hearing from you, Liz. 
And if you want to be like Liz and email the show, and why would you want to be like Liz? I'm just jealous of Liz because she got to like blast through all these seasons and like has finished (laughs) Mad Men now. (laughs) She she's past me. She was just texting me at some at various points, being all like, "This happened." I was like, "Okay, you are now officially past me." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and if you want to be like Liz, you can email us at at no, no, that's our Twitter. You can email us at stillgreatbob at gmail dot com. Yeah, and if you want to hit us up on Twitter, we are at stillgreatpod on Twitter. Um, if you like the show, please rate and review us on the podcasting system of your choice. And thank you, as always, to DJ Empirical for a very groovy new theme song. And until next time, where can people find you on the internet, Matt? can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhue, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can find me on Twitter, uh, where I don't update, and on Instagram at popartery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. You can also listen to my other podcast, which I name-checked earlier, The Daily Nightly, where we talk about all things Jane Austen. You can find me on Twitter at MellowYellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow, and you can find me as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Yay. All right. Until next time, guys. Yeah. Bye. Fellow comrades in mediocrity, I want you to listen very carefully. You can all go straight to hell. Later days. Margot Robbie, that's who I was thinking of. She was in Pan Am. What?